do we heal these big rifts in our systems? I went in with my eyes wide open, ready to learn and listen. There's no co-designing without co-deciding. All of these difficult questions are polarities, two options where choosing one or the other is always a mistake. There is more movement than I think people can see. Our elders enable us to see further. Wherever we are in an organisation, we do have the power to contribute to some change. Kia ora and welcome to episode 67 of Beyond Consultation, helping you to better serve community needs. Well, last week I was a participant at an event with a diverse group of about 70 community and social sector workers to discuss the establishment of a new representative organisation. And one of the first conversations for our table was something like, how can we put biculturalism into practice throughout this organization. And for our international listeners, biculturalism is the foundation of Aotearoa New Zealand. It's from Dr. Ranganui Walker that I learned that there are only two kinds of people in this country, tangata whenua, people of the land, and tangata tiriti, people of the treaty. And it's the Treaty of Waitangi that gives us as tangata tiriti the right to be here in this country. So that's our bicultural foundation. And that's why that question is so important. Anyway, back to the event and to our table, somebody jumped in straight away and said, why are we talking about biculturalism? We're a multicultural society. And it was both disheartening to hear that question, but also heartening to see everybody else at the table gently, but firmly educate about why biculturalism is the starting point. And if you're listening to this show, I'm sure you get that why, and I know you're hungry for the how. So in today's episode, we're really lucky to have a heavyweight in the Māori design field joining us. Desna Fangashkolam is the kaihotu, the chairperson of Ngā Aho, the Māori design professionals group. And she's also run her own practice for more than 20 years, focusing on indigenous and maturanga Māori design. I have to say, I was a little bit worried that our conversation might have made absolutely no sense because we recorded it in the last week of work in 2022, if you get my drift. But fortunately, Desna is really deely in touch with her whakapapa and her values, in part due to being one of 14% of Māori who have grown up on their whānau lands. So we explored questions like, how do you weave together Western science and Mātauranga Māori? And there's this great moment where she calls me out for repeating something about Mātauranga Māori that isn't true. We explore the challenge of trying to bring a different sort of energy to a project, a project with sharp timelines, preset outcomes, and you're trying to bring more an energy of curiosity, humility, uh, slowing down to speed up later. And we explore the decontextualization of Māori words. That's where you've got Māori words that are being more commonly used by Pākehā. But whose word is it? Whose definition do we use? And what happens when a word gets taken out of its original context, its original language, into English? And how do we navigate that? There's much more to this conversation, but I think that gives you a little bit of a flavor. This conversation reminds me of that quote in the new intro for our show, which is from Lil Anderson, who says, there is more movement than I think people can see. 
And today's episode really reinforces that for me. So please welcome to the show, Desna Fanga Sholom. Here, what are your, yeah, called Desna Fanga Sholom Tokoingwa. So yeah, I'm six or seven generations down from Ihak Sanga, who was the first Sanga. So we're from the third wife, which is, was born in Waikawa, which is off the end of Mahia, my Tafiti. And so my home, Kainga Tuturu, called Kainga Tuturu, Himanga, Hiawa, Himwana. So my true home which is about two and a half hours away from where I'm living at the moment. I'm at the other end of the Kahungunu, well, sort of mid-Kahungunu territory, shall we say, in Teote, just over the hill from Teote College, which is, yeah, really significant in terms of our landscape, not only of culture, but also of and things like Māori land incorporations. In terms of where I grew up, I mainly grew up in Mahi on Taipuritu, on that block that I just spoke about. Before that, also lived on Toapapa, which is the Māori Land Corporation that's on the end of the peninsula, now home to Rocket Lab. That was where my first school was. Uh, before that, Aniwa, which is another Māori Land Corporation out the back of sort of Whakaki heading towards Tūhoi territory. And before that, Papara too, which is at the foothills of, which is the Maunga, according to our Pūrāko that Maui fished up the North Island with. <laughs> so, yeah, bigger landscape there. Tamatoa Maui is at Manan um, uh, Te Aupakea is Hawke's Bay. So the fish hook of Maui, his grandmother's jawbone is the stars that point towards Pukapunaki. So if you're coming over the horizon, that's how you end up landing mm. where I now occupy. Yes, yeah, so that's a bit about my whakapapua on uh, Te Ao Māori side. The Shonams uh, came from Bohemia originally. My father, again, was probably about sixth generation or something like that. If you go to the Pupua, you've had my dad's father uh, <laughs> or his generation and the, the last ring on the, on the whakapapua chart that's up on the pub wall. So, yeah, yeah the Shonams right. were from Bohemia and started off, well, that, with the Dalmatians there, kind of, you know, early sets of, of Pupui. Yeah, and married my mother, Merishanga, so, which is how we come to be. And Mahi living on her whānau land. Thank you for yep. sharing that. And having grown up in Christchurch, lots of those place names for me were unfamiliar. I'd love to spend more time up that way, but I'm just looking for an excuse. We were trying, looking at doing a house swap next year, but it just hasn't worked out in the end and we were wanting to find somewhere around there. So yeah, thanks for oh, sharing that. Is that why that. you decided to interview me? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was trying to get, it's like, I was gonna get it with a local body, eh? yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I was wondering about the double-barreled surname as well. So tell me more about your mahi and how you've come into the work that you're in at the moment. So I've got a pretty diverse portfolio, shall we say, that I work across, professional hotel do. So my current roles are mainly working as the Māori comms advisor for the Sustainable Seas National Science Challenge and also doing some discrete contracts with our land and water and Senoa. So we're looking at working with Tatayo, basically. I do a lot of work around sort of telling stories about Māori researchers and the mahi that they're doing and our connections with place. Mm. Also, how their extremely innovative work is redesigning the systems that we all sit within. So whether that's economics or policy or social and cultural equity, equity for place, obviously, you know, it's primary in all of our mahi. So yeah, that's mainly my role within them. Outside of that worked in governance for a very long time or strategy. The reasoning behind that being that, you know, the governance boards are the places where we sort of set up what is best practice and also the structures that we measure ourselves against. It's good. And how do we quantify those? How do we sort of lead the direction that we want to head? And a lot of those kind of cope above all those areas are held by the governance tables. And a lot of governance is sort of, at the moment, I feel like it's begat by a Western idea of what business should look like. So 
there's a lot of change that needs to go on at, uh, at those tables. So I'm quite invested in that space. I've been kaiho to or chairperson for Nga Aho, the Māori Designer Society, for about 10 years now. So we've got about 200 Māori and, and Indigenous Fano members that have worked across pretty much everything within a built environment. Architecture, landscape architecture, engineering, design when it, it's affecting sort of public spaces, co-design, so everything within that well-being of the environment and our people in the space, using our tools for co-papa for our communities. I'm also a key, key person, kaihotu for Artspace Aotearoa, which is a gallery in Auckland that's been around for about 34 years. So yeah, I did have a board habit for quite a while. There was about eight other entities that I was working with, but I've been trying to narrow that landscape down a little bit since I've returned yeah. home to live on my Turanga Waiwai, so, you know, to try and mm. actually be present here. Mm. How does that connection to the whenua, to the land, show up in your work at the moment? Everything that I do is driven by place. It always has been. I mean, yeah, I'm lucky enough to be one of the few of my generation. I think there's like 14% of Māori, of the 14% of Māori that is, you know, across our nation that actually rural Māori, Māori and that have grown up on our hapu or iwi or whānau lands and so. 14%, yeah. 14% of the 14% kind of thing. So everything in my world has always come from that background. I was also partially, you know, raised by my grandmother as well. So those sort of intergenerational values are definitely there. So I come from a heavily place-based way of understanding the world, how that turns up on my work on a day-to-day basis now, you know, that, well, it's been such an evolution, honestly, well, it started in the 1960s, obviously, with our language revitalization and, you know, education and all of these things that, that my mother's generation fought heavily for. But, uh, you know, just saying last 10 years, I'm looking across the design industry when we started Ngā and we were talking about modern design. Initially, people are like, well, what, you're going to put some more kudu on the outside of the building? Yeah. You know, whereas now we were looking at a landscape of people actually understanding the depth and wealth of knowledge that's contained for the Mataranga Māori, that's a much bigger picture than, you know, the visuals, the aesthetics on the outside or the performative type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things have fundamentally changed. So I'm really interested in the intersections and complementary areas of Western science um, mm. and how do we get those two systems working better together in order to mm. nurture place, essentially. You sound like you're really hopeful and optimistic. And you know, some people, when I talk about this sort of mahi, like I think sometimes you can get to this place where you kind of feel like you're bashing your head against the wall and you're having the same types of conversations, but actually hearing you talk about the progress that has been made. Is really helpful. So, what is it that you think might make you hopeful for the future of this? I do look at the next generation, and there's a pressing sense of urgency to address a whole lot of mm. issues. And you know, there's a lot more awareness in the next gen, and there's a lot of the kurukopa of the kids that are coming through now that have been brought up with our as their first language, uh, which reshapes the way that they understand the world, and also just that you know, there's a certainty. In- and a confidence and identity mm. that wasn't, oh, that isn't there in my generation. You know, my reo is, is really small. But, you know, then I look at my mum's generation kind of thing where they basically, well, well you know, beat them out of them, out of them. So if we can make that amount of change over a small amount of generations, then it makes me feel hopeful. It makes me feel hopeful because the technology now, that our ability to be able to share our stories is so much more abundant than it was even when I started out with my mahi. So say I trained in like visual communication and design back in the sort of early mid-90s. We didn't have anywhere near the kind of access to being able to get stories out that you can now. 
and mm-hmm. a multitude of different media. So that's quite yeah. powerful. Uh, our access to education, like there's a lot more Māori that are coming up with doctorates as well. So whether you're sitting inside, you know, the academy and making change there, or whether you're sitting outside of that within, you know, wānanga type space, there's more power in those places in terms of our education. Those things make me feel hopeful, but you know, it's also, it's against a backdrop of um, growing inequity, you know, that within our title or things like the home situation where it's now been a couple of generations that everybody's been to believe that homes are assets, not, you know, not homes and also the, yeah, and a total belief that you can land as opposed to like look after it. So, you know, there's a lot of that embedded again, sort of a colonial thinking that is holding us back and that inequity is growing, but at the same time, the pushback or the ability to be able to tell stories and share what our knowledge is is much greater. So that gives me hope. Demographically, you know, you're in my yeah. territory, so you must be looking at the demographics and actually just understanding like, it's not going to be very long, like 20 years, and there's going to be more mm. Māori and more Pacific and more Asia that are running everything. Than mm. there is now. So just demographically, we're heading towards a kind of a culture which has to have a fundamental shift in order to be able to meet the needs of those people. Mm. So, yeah. You mentioned before, you know, you're really interested in how we weave together, well, I think you said Western science and Mataranga Māori. And but what are you seeing at the moment of examples of where that's happening and where you're seeing that it's really beneficial? Well... For instance, with the Sustainable Sea Science Challenge, the mahi that I'm doing there, I'm mainly working with our Māori researchers. We've got, say, 40 or so researchers, I think, that are on different projects, but then also, obviously, the communities that they work within. And the way that they're able to construct their projects, their mahi, their research alongside our people and make fundamental change and have a space for that is, that's really exciting. And the fact that, you know, the Crown is actually committed to those 11 science challenges and that the Vision Mātauraka, no, sorry, Vision Mātauranga, my end of things, not Mātauraka, if they're not end, um, you know, that, that has been empowered. So mm. to have a science challenge that is mm. advocating for Mātauranga Māori, like that very situation there, is a massive shift. The one of the reasons why I did, so I did my Master's in Science Communication much, much later on sort of, you know, 2014 or something like that. And the reason why I went down that pathway was because I was working on treaty claims, our treaty claims at home, and looking at our sites of significance. And we'd also, my partner and Hapo had been through quite a few environmental court cases. And uh, the thing is, at the end of those, at that time, it was the guys with the alphabet suit that came from the sciences that went, regardless of how much in-depth knowledge you might have that come from Matamai Māori, doctorates, et cetera. If you've got a science tag, then somehow your knowledge is more legitimate. So Mm. I decided to do science communication, which crosses from design and arts and that type of conceptual thinking into the sciences in order to be able to get the alphabet soup, like the talker at the end of the name, it says like you work in science. (laughs) That's more legitimate. So Mm. that's, you know, a strategy back then, but now here we are with the science challenge and they're pushing around for Marx and Marty to be working with Western science. So that's Mm. quite a powerful space. Yeah. I haven't heard that term the alphabet soup but yeah you do see that sometimes I, I don't even know what half of them mean but something in my brain goes oh okay I'm impressed and then you know you're mentioning some of the colonial mindsets that kind of continue to influence systems and what feels like it's possible and you know that's another one of those oh there's this colonial marker after somebody's name that says they're more valuable than someone else 
the way that knowledge is held and generated, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's what the academy is built around, you know, and the, I'm not saying that it's all, I'm not anti-education at all. And there's a lot of benefit to be going to mm. go through the academy. It's a very, very useful tool. However, it's not the only tool. So, mm. you know, things like the way that I guess knowledge within the academy has been set within these institutes, which means that it, it, a lot of it's been removed from place. It's been abstracted from place. It's also been abstracted from elders that are connected to place. And so that once responsibility that you have in terms of who generates knowledge, how they generate the knowledge and for what purpose, once you've removed it from those sort of community responsibilities means that, you know, it can beget a hell of a lot of knowledge that can potentially be damaging or also not beneficial for the communities that it's drawn from. Mm. So yeah, that's mm. some of that is quite problematic, but yeah, the flip side of it, there's also a hell of a lot of good tools in there too. So mm. and I imagine it's also how the knowledge is held because there's such a verbal tradition, whereas, you know, European-based cultures more emphasize writing. And so I'm wondering what you're saying of how do you... I don't know about today because like, you know, that's a much trotted out rhetoric about the way that our knowledge is uh -huh. held. And yes, there is a hell of a lot of Matsuranga Māori that is verbal and held within you know, essentially kind of storytelling type of frameworks. But mm. if you look at the mid early 1800s in New Zealand, there are more Māori that were able to write both in the real and also in English in order to be able to go, you know, through the courts and through the archives and stuff. And there were English, you know, settlers mm. that could write in English. So it was just mm -hmm. a tool that they picked up. They ran with, you know, my ancestors ran with Ihaka Sanga. I have manuscripts of his from, from mm. that time that are, you know, very articulately written. So, so. And there's a, you know, in European sort of history as well, of course, there's a lot of storytellers. So there's a lot of history that sits mm -hmm. in there as well. So that is in the Tokopapa of other cultures. It's more the written word versus oratory, I think, comes back to, again, the academy kind of concept. So where the universities come from and how's yeah. knowledge recorded and how is knowledge stored. And so if it's written word that doesn't stay with the people that do the writing, i.e. you're abstracting that Tokopapa again, I think that's where the you know, the power play kind of comes into it and the potential danger. But yeah, I feel like the, you know, written word versus oratory, oratorial forms of, of knowledge is trotted out a little bit too often. So yeah. Oh, thanks for calling it out. What do they call it? A false dichotomy as well, that it's not an either or. It's, it's no. both that go together. Māori have a what history a, of mm. innovation, you know, mm. our ancestors were innovators. That's why you have characters like Maui Tiki Tiki Atarangans, because mm. he was a, a, he was somebody who challenged this folk behind Maui. If you're not looking at that, you know, the actual whakapapa to the ancestor that did exist, but like mm. the corridor that's held in the way that his story is told, it is about like challenging knowledge systems. It's about looking at power plays. It's about being able to innovate and look at things differently. So that's the messaging behind that sort of character that's been built up around you know, that ancestor that was a navigator. And you mentioned power plays and, you know, we've also talked a little bit about the systems that you inhabit. So I'm interested in what do you do when you're working with someone and you're trying to help people to see the power dynamics that are in play in a certain situation that might be hidden or invisible in some way? What do you do to sort of help people safely see that these are the invisible things that are making you think in a certain way or do things in a certain way? Or... I think the best way to be able to work alongside each other is empathy and 
deep listening. We all have the potential that we come to any table that we're working at, so the governance table that we're working at with a lot of skill set and there's people that have obviously respected the mahi that you've done in order for you to be able to participate in that forum in the first place. In order to be able to do that healthily, though, you know, we've all got our own co-popper potentially that we're driving or that we're seeking to support. We need to be able to listen. So if you have a really strong idea, to be able to debate that and then have enough, you know, mana and respect for each other to be quiet and deeply listen to what it is that the other person is putting forward. So if that's not happening and there's a really loud voice at the table, you know, if you're advocating hardcore for something and you're not listening to others, I think the best way to grow awareness there is potentially asking questions, you know. So if somebody puts an idea forward to challenge that or encourage people to think a bit more deeply about why it is that they have that kind of concept and in doing so hopefully, you know, nurtures your own self-awareness and awareness of where the other person is coming from, but also helps them to, you know, think in a similar manner too. So one of the best skills, yeah, that you can have is deep listening and empathy and the ability to ask questions. Oh, that's music to my ears and also can be a really hard skill sometimes asking a question and then just shutting up and giving space to someone else to fill it. I think sometimes we get trained to find the answer instead of getting mm. trained to ask the question. And so I've noticed in myself, I have to unlearn that need to be the helpful one with the answer. I don't know if that's been an experience for you or not. Yeah, definitely. It's sort of, you know, the early childhood, I guess, being with my grandparents, et cetera, definitely that uh, it's a cultural thing to have respect, you know, so you do learn to be a bit quieter kind of thing and do what your name tells you, essentially, you know, <laughs> or the aunties, oh my God, particularly some of our aunties, they're quite, you know, they definitely want to make you they give behave you the yourself. Yeah, thank you, yeah. But, you know. Later on in, in life, I was sort of thinking about or being open to learning and being curious. And that comes, I think, a lot from the creative industries as like mm. a perpetual curiosity and seeking what it is that's interesting or that's different or thinking deeply about something and being okay with also the idea of whatever it is being, it could be random, it might fall over, it might be a completely sort of ridiculous idea, but being willing to learn and to investigate and being curious. And by being curious, you can be creative. If you're not curious and you think that you know everything, you're highly unlikely to come up with anything that's, you know, that is creative or interesting. So people that have got an inbuilt or ongoing lifelong love for learning curiosity, I think that stands you in good stead. And it is something that I've talked about with some of my mentors, for instance, for from Aho, who, you know, they're not quite Komato, but, you know, heading in that direction and a lot of the, the karmatua that we do admire are committed to the lifelong learning, you know, mm -hmm. they're always, yes, we can consider them experts, but at the same time, the humble way that they are able to continue mm -hmm. learning and also use that learning or put it forward in a way that makes us all continue to learn as well. It's one of those amazing things that some karmatua can do. A good example that I'd seen of that when I was working on our Treaty claims was Paura Whanga, who obviously off my Fano, but from the first wife, and he was one of our komatua. I think he must have been in his 80s. And we're sitting at Te Rewhakaimi Wairo, which is our claimant group. And you've got, well, you know, right. upwards of 40 hapu in there. It's pretty treaty claims. <laughs> are 
set up around arguing, essentially. But mm-hmm. um, there's a, you know, a hapu that are debating something. It's getting really heated. And Pada just stood up and basically said, like he chanted this sort of toparapara. And by doing that, even though it's metaphorical or kind of, you know, it is an oratory skill, he reminded us all that we are all related and actually that our kaupapa is shared and it needs to be the crown that we are debating things with and to have respect for each other. But he did that through an oratory form in a really quiet, balanced, you know, learned type of way. Yeah, and Pada, you know, he was writing it right up until he passed away. He was still writing some of our whakapapa books. And so he's learning all the time, constantly, and then delivering what it is that he's learning or sharing it with us as a reminder to also seek continued relationships, seek continued learning and being able to calm people down via that way of doing things as opposed to, you know, being expert. Mm. Yeah. Mm. The humility of that obsession with always learning more, I really hear that. And whenever I fill out any of those slightly annoying personality quizzes that Sometimes you find yourself doing <laughs> in work life. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 50 questions of do you prefer this or that? I, one thing that always comes out near the top for me is learner. So I, I, my vision of a good day is going to the library, getting six books on something and then just reading them because I just love that process. And so I find it really hard when I'm in an organizational environment that doesn't have that same obsession yep. for learning. And yeah, I mean, you're in the creative field so right that that'll be part of what makes you tick I presume one of my early jobs that I had which was in a very commercial entity that was something that I really struggled with was that there wasn't when you're sitting with an entirely commercial structure they don't necessarily support those learning pathways or value research or value thinking deeply or that orientation that you do particularly early in your career you're trying to find out okay so where do I sit within the landscape I've got to do some reading up on what everybody else is doing make sure that I'm orienting towards that and trying to keep across that so that you're because that you're developing is always going to be relevant and that you're doing best practice. However, if you put that against a productivity model, which, um, you know, is very, very prevalent, particularly when you're sort of a junior in any firm, productivity doesn't, doesn't give space for that kind of development type of stuff. It's more about like how much stuff can you get out, how quickly make sure that it's good, but there's not like we're not investing necessarily in your learning pathways in order to be able to, you know, see what the bigger picture is. You've just got to get more stuff out rapidly every day all day you know how fast can you do it kind of thing when you're sitting in that state your ability to learn is really undermined you know so I've had to well you know I learned through some of those early experiences where I could actually healthily healthily exist and also where I felt like it can actually contribute something so some of that is sort of finding out an orientation within the industrial landscape about where my skills actually yeah where do they suit and some of that I've learned the hard way so yeah yeah and you're making me think of situations in my own work, which have probably been the most frustrating in the moment. And then later on, I look at it and I go, I was actually probably adding a lot of value simply by kind of pushing back against the culture that said, do more, do it faster and <laughs> with less wasted time and inverted on a where the wasted time was actually building relationships and researching and understanding where we are in this particular place that we're working in. And yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts as well. And when you're in a space where people maybe don't understand the value of working relationally and the importance of just spending time, having cups of tea and getting to know people. Yeah. How have you found that experience? How have you navigated that? Poorly. 
frequently, actually, to be honest. You know, it's taken me a well, while. That's to nice to really, hear. Yeah, <laughs> I've learned by mistakes, yeah. you know, and but it's also just taken me a long time to understand what to be able to see what the drivers are and not to try not to take that stuff quite so personally, just sort of understand here's what the value right. it is, is that I'm bringing to the situation and that doesn't need to be a, a critique of somebody that comes from a different sort of perspective about what the purpose of works and, and productivity, et cetera. It's just like, it's a cultural difference. So that's key to play. But yeah, I have to walk away from situations like that. I'm not one of the people that are like, is super invested in producing more stuff for more people so that they can buy more stuff on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, like I just, I don't care, like, you know, the productivity or having a hell of a lot of money or, you know, I don't know, having like a super high profile, these types of things, they're not, I don't feel like they're meaningful, you know, I have to have a sense of purpose and know that the money that I'm doing is connected to the co-papa, otherwise I'm not doing my best work and that's not good for whatever entity that I'm working with any more than it's good for me. So yeah, it's just being able to have enough self-awareness that, you know, sometimes things are going to work out, sometimes things are not going to work out. And if there's a, diff- if there's a cultural difference in what it is that we're seeking to achieve what our purpose is, then I'm best to walk away rather than, mm. you know, drive them nutty or they drive me nutty kind of thing. So yeah. Mm. Picking your battles, basically. Yeah, and picking who you want to work alongside of. So Ketabai, there's mm. a lot of people that want that are super involved in the industrialized way of existing and that are really all about making a lot more money. And I'm trying to say that in a non-cynical way, but I'm probably mm. failing. So, yeah. And one of the things that can make people cynical in this sort of work as well is when words get taken, they mean one thing and they get used for a different purpose or with a slightly different meaning. And so, you know, we can see that with, you know, a word like co-design, for instance, but also words, kupamari, you know, whether it's you know, kaitiakitanga or, you know, words that are starting to filter through from te ao Māori into te ao Pākehā and becoming more common in te ao Pākehā. So I'm not really sure what my question here is, but I'm just interested, Desna, in what That decontextualization of the observing. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, kaitiakitanga is a big one for us, yeah? So kaitiakitanga, because it was put within the Resource Management Act and for intents and purposes, was like, you know, the aim or the intent there was positive. However, you know, what's ended up happening there is that the word has been completely decontextualized. It's been removed from sort of, there's at least six different, you know, sort of elements that go into forming what kaitiaki tunga is understood as. And the vast majority of people understand that kaitiaki tunga is like a stewardship or a guardianship of place, conservation estate kind of corridor. However, the fullness of kaitiaki tunga includes things like wairua, includes the more than human, and includes our responsibilities to each other as well as our responsibilities to place. You know, it's a multi, multi-dimensional concept. I had the privilege of reading and also ju- just doing sort of summaries of a paper that's called Huitiana Nui, Understanding Kaitiaki Tunga in Our Marine Environment Within the Sustainable Sea Science Challenge. Brilliant paper. And uh, yeah, they've explored there. So and I made some graphics and things around that and it's got a lot of references to where it has been used within legislation within New Zealand. So that report talks about kaitiakitanga, including rangatiratanga, the non-human, the human, sustainable management and conservation and protection, taonga and spiritual beliefs and values. You know, it's a much bigger picture. Without that bigger picture, then you're digitalizing the terminology and it loses its power, you know, so, or its potency of meaning. Um, yeah, so... 
that happens. The co-design thing too, it has been picked up and stuck all over the place and basically just, you know, it's consultation but in many places as opposed yeah. to actually co-design. So that power sharing is not there. Yeah. And the partnership aspects have been watered down a lot and it becomes like a toolbox and not actually a way of working. And, you know, mm. there's one thing, there's your tools, but then there's also just the way that you work and what your intent is and those other things are what guides whether you're using those tools in a purposeful manner mm. for what they've been intended for or we've just picked up the tools and use them, you know. If there's a bit of a pattern here then of words being decontextualized, lo- losing the meaning and then people kind of unintentionally or intentionally, I don't know, manipulating them. What do you think is behind that? What might be causing that to happen again and again and again with so many different words? Yeah, liberal agendas, capitalism, industrialization, mm. you know? Yeah, basically it's a, a pick it up and use it for whatever our overall sort of political purposes type of thing. So co-design or kaitiakitanga, as I was talking about earlier, in terms of our learning system, Sims like the academy, if that's disconnected from place and it's disconnected from responsibility to place and responsibility to your relationships and those, yeah, human and those caring aspects, then yeah, I think that's the issue. It's abstracting knowledge from responsibility from wairua from place. And it's making me think as well, you know, back to that question that I've got for myself, which is where are the limits for me as Pakia and some of the work that I'm doing. So, and that there's no clear answer to that sometimes, but always just being alive to the fact that I might actually need to step out because I don't understand enough about this context, this place, this word, this kaupapa. Yeah. I don't know what, as a Māori working in this space, what are the situations for you where you might get annoyed at going, hey, hold up Pakia, you're coming too far. You're trying to do too much here. I think that comes down to, well, kind of the toolbox kind of answer. You can think that you're doing really, really well and that you've learned all the tools, but if you haven't actually tuned in to what it is that's happening at that particular point and who people are that you're working with and what places that you're working with, then, you know, then your tools can be damaging. So having empathy and having respect, respect for others. And I don't mean that, and I'd like you've got to bow down to you know, other people, that kind of patriarchal or hierarchical concept of respect, I just mean respect in terms of really thinking about where you are and what your purpose is and what you're contributing and what it is that the community or place that you're working with actually needs. So being humble enough to think, okay, I've got this awesome toolbox, I can use it and here's all my knowledge that I've got to give to this, this kind of situation, but I need to be able to deeply listen to what is needed and then it's about having respect yeah respect for the people that you're working with respect for the place that you're working with Mm. and to yeah i guess offer those tools as ways of doing that yeah so really taking that time to listen and understand what long before you come in with any sense of what a solution might be that's for sure yeah yeah and just thinking about like i mean you also might not have the right tool set with you but somebody else that you know within your network or within your field of influence may do. And if you're open to sort of sharing those networks or, or calling other people in and not thinking like, am I only doing this because I've got four hours, I'm being paid for these things. If you're mm. thinking about a work situation, a consultation situation, mm. uh, and uh, therefore that's the only time that I'm actually going to think about it. So 
<laughs> you know, that transactional way of thinking rather than what is my purpose and what is it that I'm seeking to yeah. change is, you know, that's also undermines your potential for being able to work in a, you know, power sharing or truly co-creative type of way. I wish I could turn my brain off. Um, <laughs> in that case, apparently like swimming and time out into Taiwan and walking through the Ngahiri. Yeah. Yeah. But to be able to cool off all of that noise is quite useful too. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, Desna, we're all of a sudden getting towards the end of our time together. So I'm just wondering if there are any other whakaaro that you've got for people listening. Well, I'm terrible at answering like the questions that are that are super broad. Have you got like something more particular that you can, you know, no, point to thing at? No? No, no, no. It's more just like, uh, you know. Was there anything that you were hoping to communicate to people today, whether it's about matauranga Māori, you know, working with respectful relationships, place-based practice, and what good looks like? Uh, well, I guess you did, you, you actually brought that up earlier as that relational concept. So that term seems to be being brought up more and more often and maybe hopefully people are starting to be familiar with it, but the concept of, of relationships with place in relationships with each other and trying to build those and, and nurture them and uh, have that as a center of purpose, really. I think mm -hmm. it's worthwhile thinking about that in terms of economics. It's worthwhile thinking about that in terms of your day-to-day. -day. What does your home look like? You know, I, do you have a relationship with the whenua that you're actually standing on? Are you nurturing that? Are you nurturing that with your neighbors? Are you nurturing that with your community? And yeah, are you nurturing that with the environment? Because without our, our having respect for the, for the ecosystems that we all sit within, like we do not exist. So I think considering more about that relational space is really powerful and urgent at the moment. Mm, I like how you bring it back to the place you are on day to day, actually. Yeah. What's the, what's happening with the garden at home? What's happening with the neighbors? What's happening with the driveway that's slipped down the hill or whatever it might be that's happening at home for you and yeah we had the big floods here in nelson in august and that was really interesting yeah. how that well just like the christchurch earthquakes actually just brought the community together and we saw people coming out of their homes and chatting and connecting and that's carried on since then so yeah hey well desna thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing some of your stories and some of your wisdom that might just seem innate to you but actually is really unique to you as well. I really appreciate yeah, what you've shared around taking the time to understand what's going on, who's who, what place are you in, and context has been a big word for me that's really come out of this conversation. So if you take things out of context and they lose their meanings, you've got to stay connected to that context. That would be the big theme that I've really heard from you. No, it's been really nice being quoted all with you today. So yeah, thanks for I mean interviewing everybody and trying to find more like minded people that want to dig into these spaces, these co papa, you know, knowing that we've all got a shared learning journey to go on. <laughs> but also that people are invested in that as well. Yeah, it's a good thing. <laughs> so mm, kia ora. for sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Consultation. And what now? Well, I've got three suggestions for you. Firstly, go and check out the show notes in your podcast player or on the Business Label Learning Lab website so you can see the resources that were shared in the show. Secondly, 
send a message to our guests. It's really nice when you've been a guest in this slightly nerve-wracking experience and then people get in touch to thank you for sharing your stories and experiences. And lastly, do connect with me on LinkedIn. I view LinkedIn as an ongoing conference. You know, this amazing way to be exposed to new people and new ideas that can stretch and enhance your practice. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you again for listening. Ngā mihi mō te whakaro.